couple of announcements. Am I on? Do I have volume? No volume? No volume? Is there volume now? No. I need volume. Okay, that'll work. All right, I am going to uh, run through this. There will be a couple of changes. I am going to incorporate those changes. Um, And there will be more changes. But I'll tell you what those are going to be so it's not going to be complicated. Uh, We've scheduled this dinner at Kenny and Ziggy's at 6.30. What we're going to do is have a banquet because we have almost 30 now. I think we're going to have more than 30 And Ziggy told me the other day that if we had more than about 20, it would blow up the kitchen if we had everybody ordering individually. So we're going to have a buffet, and we'll figure, i got got to go meet with him to figure out what that's going to entail and what the cost is going to be. And so that will allow us to be able to probably get there about 6.15 and be able to get our food, go through the line, get our food, sit down, and then Mitch can start talking about 6.35, 6.40, something like that, and he can talk while we eat. That way uh, he finishes at a reasonable time when he can eat because most speakers don't like to eat and then stand up and talk. They usually eat later. So anyway, that's that. So we'll get the price, all these different things figured out, and uh, we'll get that out in in an email. The other thing is Cheryl got an email out just a little while ago on um, that was an email from Luda Ugramova, who is, she's spoken here a couple of times. She's been here two or three times. Uh, she has, um, lives in Irpine, which is on the northwest side of, of uh, Kiev, which was just retaken by the, uh, by the Ukrainians. And so she sent her uh, report of what she went through in February and in March, and then there's a link to a before and after uh, a shot of, um, of Irpine, before the Russians and after the Russians, and also Bucha. Bucha is where uh, Sergei Yakovchuk lives. Sergei is Jim's driver, and he's the one who left unknowing, not knowing the war was going to start the next day and decided to go skiing with some friends in the Czech Republic, which was probably God's design because there's an airfield up there that was heavily hit the second day of the war by the Russians. And... Um, there was a huge battle on his street, and he sent me a video of all that somebody on his street went walked down the street, and there were blown up Russian tanks and body Russian bodies hanging out of the tanks, and all these things just a uh, few moments after the battle was over. So it was a good thing that he was not there. And um, anyway, so. There's all that information out there, and that's a city and an area where a number of graduates of the Word of God Bible College uh, have ministries and lived and worked. Some of them, like Mark Musser's house, was in an area that wasn't under the Russian control. Others were. So just to make you understand, this is personal for the ministry. Okay, we know people who live right there and everything. So, all right, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. 
In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. So before we open God's word, let's bow our heads together and have a few moments of silent prayer so that we can be spiritually prepared, walking by the Holy Spirit in right relationship with him, if necessary, confessing sin, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we are, excuse me, let's have a few more moments of silence. Our Father, we're thankful we can come before your throne of grace tonight, that we have a high priest who understands our weaknesses, that we know that from eternity past you have known all about this uh, war in Ukraine. And, Father, we rejoice at the testimonies we hear from so many. And it is just wonderful to see the fruit of the ministry of uh, Jim Myers and uh, all of those who have worked with him over the last 22 years and how this is bearing such remarkable fruit. It's so rare to be able to see something like this. Father, we're just thankful for it. We're thankful for uh, also for many of the other missionaries that we support that are uh, around the world, and I'm specifically thinking about the Perkins. I'm thinking about several families who uh, are down in Brazil and the ministry that Jeff Phipps has with the churches down there. Also for Raleigh Morris, because he has now been given a green light to go to Israel, and they've been waiting for two years, having sold their house, ready to go, and then the doors closed, and it's hard to be on hold for two years. And so he asked for prayer to be able to um, uh, get everything together so that they can finally move and begin their ministry in Israel. Father, we thank you for so much that you do for this church and for our opportunities uh, tonight to just d- dig into your word and come to understand some of these critical principles uh, from your word. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, tonight we are back in Judges. After 11 lessons dealing with issues related to the role and uh, responsibilities of the two different sexes that God created, understanding a number of those issues that are of such confusion for people. How can things so obvious be such a point of confusion? But that's because... When you're operating on carnality, you're in darkness and blind to the truth. It is all these things are a spiritual issue. And the only thing that removes the blinders is the light from God's word. So we're back in Judges. We're back into the sixth chapter of Judges. So you um, might want to, instead of opening your Bible there, open your Bible to Psalm 83. We'll go there uh, there first, and then we'll uh, get back to 
Judges 6, but we'll go through some things in Psalm 83 as we prepare for our uh, background for the Gideon uh, judgeship. And that will be our starting point. So just a reminder, since it's been a while, that Judges is has three basic sections to it. The first section is the introduction. It introduces us to the fact that Israel collapses spiritually because of their compromise, their failure to obey God specifically and exclusively in annihilating all of the Canaanites. They end up first compromising, then assimilating uh, with this. This is a failure of the test of prosperity. No nation has ever passed the test of prosperity. Once they get into prosperity, the cycles of civilizations always seem to ring true. And instead of uh, trusting God when everything is going good, they begin to trust in themselves and everything begins to fall apart. And so this leads to a cycle of of a worldview shift that is the same today as it was then. There may be different names. Uh, there, It may not be quite as overtly gross, but it will get there. But that's what we see today. It is a parallel, sadly, a parallel with what is going on in Western civilization. And so we see the cycles of discipline that take place during the uh, period of the judges and then there's an indictment of the leadership, and we see this trajectory. It's a negative trajectory uh, going from the first judge, uh, Othniel, and then Ehud. Shamgar wasn't ever called a judge, but he is one who delivers Israel. Uh, Deborah Gideon is the one we look at tonight. He is the fourth one designated a, as a judge. Then we have minor judges. Atola Jair, Major Judge Jephthah, Minor Judges Ibzan, Elan, Abdon, and then Samson. It goes from those at the beginning are have positive things said about them, positive things spiritually. And from Gideon, there's a turning point. And at this point, afterwards, nothing, not that much good is said of those that follow him. So we see that this is a, a major shift in the narrative of, of, of Judges. And then the paganization of the priests. And the priests are ignored. It's amazing. Nobody's teaching the word Deborah really. And you don't see with Deborah as she's functioning as a judge, you don't see any mention of priests. The first priest mentioned is the priest mentioned in Judges, I think it's Judges 17, and he's an apostate. So the the judges who are responsible for this teaching the people and the spiritual welfare of the people are AWOL. Nobody knows what they're doing because it's not revealed. And the next time we see a picture of a, of a priest in the period of the judges is who? Uh, it is um, Eli in 1 Samuel chapter 1. And Eli's got two sons who are just as reprobate and paganized as they possibly can can be. And so we get a very negative picture of the spirituality and the morality of the of the priesthood. And sadly, that's pretty much what we see in in a lot of 
so-called Christian churches today. Just don't even count the liberals. They have no clue what's going on spiritually. Or some of the other large groups, such as the Russian Orthodox, Ukrainian Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, Syrian Orthodox, the whole Eastern Orthodox crowd is all focused on legalism and ritual as the means to have a relationship with God, except for a few exceptions. Um, and there are a few exceptions. And there are exceptions in the Roman Catholic community as well. But these are a, truly exceptions rather than the standard. So we have a complete collapse of the nation as they shift from being spiritually focused to being uh, uh, canonized or paganized. And the cycle here, don't confuse this with the cycle of disciplines, which I usually refer to them as stages of discipline in Leviticus chapter 26. Uh, this is this circular structure of judges where they have, they're disobedient and then God brings discipline on them and then that leads to their uh, deliverance and most of the time you don't even see a statement related to any kind of turning back to God or repentance. They cry out to God much like a child cries out when he gets spanked by his parents, but there's no change of mind at all. And then the cycle repeats itself uh, through the through the time of the judges. And so you just see this whole trajectory of uh, downward trajectory from one judge to the next. Othniel has nothing negative said about him. Samson has nothing positive said about him. And in between, we have uh, these other. These are the major judges that are described in uh, in the book of Judges. So we come to the Gideon cycle, and it's really this section covers three chapters. So we'll be here more than a couple of weeks. Uh, we have the first part involves the first two chapters, Judges 6 and Judges 7, all the way uh, down to, I think it goes down to the end of 8, uh, apostasy, in, uh, which is mentioned in one verse. And then there's the description of the divine discipline, which is in 6.1b through 6. So there are five, basically 5.1 verses. Uh, that describe God's discipline on them. And then you've got the deliverance, which is from 6, 7 to the end of chapter 8, and that ends up with 94 verses. So where's the focus? On the deliverance. And we've seen that before, that in each of these episodes, we see the emphasis on God delivering the people, which brings us to a great emphasis on God's grace, something so misunderstood. And in many cases, it's not, it, it, it's, it's truly what grace is. It's undeserved. The people are not turning back to God. They're not um, uh, changing anything. They just are, are tired of the oppression and they, and they cry out to God. And so we'll need to emphasize a lot of things about grace. So many people just don't understand grace. I don't know how many of you um, get Jim Meyer's newsletters, but a couple of times in the last couple of weeks, he has included some material from uh, Denise. It's D-E-N-I-S, but it's pronounced Denise, not Dennis. 
And he is a Belarusian who, through the ministry that they have all through this time period, uh, Mark Musser goes into Belarus and Jim has gone into Belarus and some others have gone into Belarus. And uh, Denise is one of those. And uh, Jim said he's the smartest student, the best student he's had in, in these 22 years. And it's just so impressive. He is just so grateful because what the Christianity that he was exposed to was more of a fatalistic Calvinism. And now he understands grace and he understands uh, that uh, we have eternal security. That's a big problem both for uh, uh, your hyper-Calvinists as well as your Arminians, the Baptists. Uh, the problem with the Baptists is that they think you can lose your salvation. <clears throat> with the hyper-Calvinists, you're not really sure you have it until you die because you have to persevere uh, to the end. And if you don't persevere to the end, then probably you weren't saved. And I remember, it's about 20 years ago now, that a um, a, a well-known uh, Presbyterian pastor up in uh, Pennsylvania, up in uh, Philadelphia, was uh, was dying, and so there was another uh, there was another Presbyterian, uh, R.C. Sproul, conducting one of his well-known conferences, and at this same time, uh, Dr. Boyce was dying. And each night at the conference, Sproul would pray that he would persevere and not fail before he died. There's no certainty. And you've heard me tell you before about one time, John MacArthur's very lordship. He's the epitome of sort of evangelical dispensational um, lordship, was, uh, had come out with his first book really defending lordship salvation called The Gospel According to Jesus, um, and he gave a he gave a thing for pastors. He was in Dallas for the Christian Booksellers Convention, and the owner of the rather large uh, uh, Bible bookstore in Irving, where I pastored, had uh, a pastor's breakfast. And MacArthur spoke, and actually, we were there were a bunch of us, and we were sitting down on the floor. At, and Tommy Ice and I were right in the first row, and MacArthur was standing there speaking. And when he finished, I because he talked about assurance, I said, "I said, well, uh, Doctor MacArthur, how how sure are you that you're going to be saved?" And he said, "About ninety-eight percent." So there's no assur- real assurance of salvation in lordship salvation. So this is just very very sad. So we have to understand a lot of things about grace and things about legalism. Then in the second part of the Gideon cycle, you have one of the strangest episodes in the Bible. This is in Judges chapter 9. So actually we have four chapters, 6, 7, 8, and 9. And this is the story of the first king of Israel. I always love to ask this trivia question. Who's the first person crowned king of Israel? Of course, nearly everybody says it's Saul because they don't read Judges. And in Judges, Gideon's son, Abimelech, becomes 
the first person crowned king of Israel by the men of Shechem. Judges chapter 9. Most people miss that. Well, that God didn't anoint him. I didn't ask that. I said, who is the first person crowned king of Israel? And it's him. And he reigns for two years. So the, the, the kingdom's not united. It's apostate and everything. But nevertheless, he's the first one. So we get into that. That is a bizarre, uh, bizarre episode. Okay, so what we're going to look at as we get into this is just this whole theme in, of increasing paganization uh, takes place against the backdrop of the grace of God. So as we've gone through this, we've seen that there are uh, these uh, six key judges. Gideon is sort of the turning point. After that, there are no, uh, all the judges after him are more worse than they are, uh, are, are good. And so this just shows the testimony of God's grace. I've always thought it was personally encouraging, at least, to find that, that Barak and Jephthah and Gideon and Samuel are all listed as great men of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. And you all ought to feel that way, too, because they failed in huge ways. And it's just like, well, if they can make it, maybe there's a little hope that that somewhere in some record in heaven there'll be uh, a mention that, that somehow I trusted God at a critical moment because that's what happens is God emphasizes the fact that they trust God at a critical moment. And with Gideon, he almost immediately turns around and falls flat on his face and leads the nation back into uh, idolatry. So grace emphasizes the fact that God cares for his people. God loves his people. And even though he has to bring discipline against them because of failure and, in some cases, serious apostasy, he does not reject them. Paul emphasizes this at the end of Romans chapter 8. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that's the end of Romans 8. But there's an unheard question that Paul hears. And that's from the Jewish audience that says, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, what about us? You know, God said he's going to give us a land, he's going to give us the kingdom, we're his chosen people, and what you're saying is we're all going to be kicked out of the land, and now he's formed this new entity called the church. Well, what about us? And that's why you have Romans 9, 10, and 11, where God emphasizes that he hasn't deserted his people, he hasn't given them up, and that he still loves them in spite of all the failures and flaws and sins, and that uh, eventually he will restore the, the nation and fulfill all of his promises to them. So that's, that, it's important to understand the context there that because there would be an issue if God, and then this is why I think some of these people like the Baptists in Ukraine uh, and other Arminians believe they can lose their salvation is because they believe God, they're also, many of them, into replacement theology, 
when Israel sinned and rejected their Messiah, God just cut them off and said, okay, you're done. I'm going to go with the new people and nothing more for you. So that would indicate that you're not secure in your salvation or you're in position before God. So that's, that's a, that's a huge, uh, a huge question that, that comes up. So what we're going to see in Judges 6, uh, more than any other lesson that we've had so far, I, I think reminds us of what Paul goes through in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 verses 7 through 10 are uh, one of the greatest sections of Scripture to emphasize that God is sufficient for us and God's word is sufficient for us and the work of Christ on the cross is sufficient for us. That word sufficient is it is enough. It doesn't have to be more than enough. It is more than enough, but it doesn't have to be more than enough as long as it's enough because you don't have to have this this overflow, but there is an overflow of God's grace. And what this emphasizes is that our solutions to the problems of life are grounded in the grace of God, and it is sufficient for us, whatever that problem may be. And so often we want God's solutions to be our solution rather than the other way around, and so we think that somehow God uh, doesn't answer our prayers, and that's true. He doesn't answer our prayers the way we want them to, and that's exactly what what Paul talks about here. He talks about the thorn in the flesh that's given to him. And in Second uh, Corinthians twelve seven, we read, "And lest I should be exalted above measure." In other words, unless I really became proud of myself, and I, uh, and that's because earlier in the chapter it talks about the fact that he's ascended to heaven and given revelation. And he sees things that nobody else has ever seen, so he could really become full of himself. And that's basically what he says, lest I should become full of myself beyond uh, measure by the abundance of revelations, by all that was revealed to him. He says, a thorn in the flesh was given to me. And then it's defined further in the appositional phrase that comes up, a messenger of Satan. So a lot of people down through the history have said that this thorn in the flesh was the fact that it seems like Paul had weak eyes or that he had various health problems. A number of things like that have come up, but the thorn in the flesh is a messenger of Satan. And the Greek word for messenger is angelos. When you have a double G in Greek, it's pronounced N-G. There's a couple of other letters that do that. Um, but it's an, um, an angel of Satan, a messenger of Satan to buffet him. So he is going to be, he, you know, some of us have guardian angels. Well, he had a demon, not internally, but externally, that is oppressing him and bringing opposition against him in his ministry. And I believe that the context tells us what what how this was expressed in Paul's life and it didn't have anything to do with health issues and it doesn't have anything to do with poor eyesight the messenger this thorn in the flesh is this messenger of satan to buffet him lest he be exalted above measure he's going to be humbled by this 
Now, it's interesting because most people down through the, most scholars, most Bible students down through the ages have thought that, that the Apostle Paul was arguably the most brilliant man of the ancient world. And there is some evidence in the Babylonian, tar, Babylonian Targum that there was somebody of high stature that somehow did something, he's not named, somehow did something and brought great shame upon the rabbis. And this, a, a lot of people think that it's a pretty good chance this is an allusion to the Apostle Paul. He has, he's brilliant. He's the greatest mind in Judaism, in rabbinical Judaism, Pharisaical Judaism prior to his salvation, and the greatest mind in Christianity. And yet he goes places, and he's instead of people accepting him, he's rejected. And he goes through a variety of different persecutions. So he has to face all of these different persecutions from uh, floggings to getting arrested, put in jail, being shipwrecked several times, all of these different things. He says, concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. Now, the average American evangelical Christian is going to think, if I'm facing that kind of opposition, then whatever it is I'm doing, it can't be God's will. If I'm going to put my life in danger, that can't be God's will. But it is. God wants us to carry out the mission of evangelism, discipleship, teaching, training people to grow to spiritual maturity. And so that's going to bring opposition. Jesus told his disciples, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. You think you're greater than I am and they won't persecute you? Hogwash. That's a textual variant in the passage. So he says, concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And like I always say, God either says yes or no or wait a while. And God said no. In verse 9, he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect or complete in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So a couple of things to point out here. First of all, the basic principle is in the first clause. My grace is sufficient for you. That's a promise of God that we can take to the bank in any circumstance, whatever circumstances I'm in, I can relax in God's grace. That's the real meaning of Philippians 4.13. I can do all things means in the context, whatever circumstances I'm in, whether I have abundance or whether I have nothing, I can do all things. The context is I can live in whatever the circumstances are, whether all I have is a ratty old blanket with holes in it or whether I have the the best bed in the nation, I can relax and I can survive that with maximum happiness and joy because of Christ. I can do all things, handle any situation through Christ who strengthens me. 
That's what he's saying here. My grace is sufficient for you. The sufficiency of Scripture is, in my opinion, the first and most significant corollary to the inerrancy of Scripture. Because the Scripture is inerrant, it is without error, it is sufficient. And most Christians deny it. They deny it when they look at the evidence for God's creation versus evolution. They think that the Bible is not sufficient in giving us information about the origins of the universe and the origin of man. Uh, they look at it in terms of psychology. And when, when Freud came along, Freud hated Christianity, he hated anything biblical, and he came up with a total framework for handling human problems apart from depending upon God or the Bible or religion at all. He hated it. And so he, all of his little derivatives, all the little psychotherapists since then have all tried to use his different mechanisms and methodologies in order to solve problems. But what about all those Christians who lived from the time of Christ up until the 1870s? Well, they just didn't have enough information. They needed to get psychology and that's basically the message that a lot of seminaries have, have put out there. One of the things that was a turning point for Dallas Theological Seminary was that in the early seven, late 60s and early 70s, they would send out surveys to graduates, after, especially alumni who had been pastors for some time, and they would say, what is it that you wish or would like to have had more of in the curriculum? Because the Dallas curriculum was really tight. You only had room for six or seven two-hour electives. So aside from, let's say, 12 hours out of 130, every, everybody had the same courses. That's what made Dallas great. We're not quite that liberal at Chafer Seminary. We have no room for electives. <laughs> After the board got together listing all the courses they thought every student would have, we had more than what we could require. So, uh, But sufficiency is what, what's important to us because what these, these alumni said, I wish we had more courses on counseling. And so they introduced, you know, took out Bible study, exegetical theology courses and put counseling courses in there. The Bible is sufficient. That's what that's what it says, and that's why Chafer Seminary built its curriculum upon the Bible and providing that biblical knowledge because that's how we are able to help people is teaching them about the sufficiency of God's grace for for everything in life. And I have run across this. I often thought, well, I don't have time to do this and read everything that I need to in all the biographies. But I run into so many great, hymn, wonderful hymnists who just were plagued with depression. But they claim promises. That's what made their hymns so rich and gave them such depth is that they learned to really trust God in great difficulty. And you, you go back, you have a number of problems that everybody faced, the same problems that you have, same problems that I have, but they learned to trust God, and God was sufficient for them. And now you have people, I remember hearing one person make the comment, said, 
it was so easy, so much easier to have the fruit of the Spirit after I got on Zoloft. But there's a lot of Christians who do that. You know, I, I can handle my problems now that I've got drugs. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says we are to learn to handle our problems by trusting God. And we, it's, is it easy? No, it's not easy. If it was easy, everybody would do it. But it's that difficulty that enables us to grow and mature in the, in the spiritual life. So God says, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength, it's God's strength. We exchange our strength for God's strength. It's his strength, not our strength. My strength is made complete in weakness. So Paul, Paul has that as a promise. Talk about the faith rest drill. First of all, what, what do you do when you have a faith rest drill? You claim a promise. Second thing is you think through the doctrinal rationale, what's embedded there. And what's embedded there is the major premise that God's grace is sufficient for us. Second, my strength is made complete in your weakness. Conclusion, that's what Paul comes to here. That's the third part, reaching a doctrinal conclusion. I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. I don't want anybody to raise your hands or everybody get a poker face. How many of you have just boasted in all the hard times you have? Not complaining. That's not boasting, okay? Boasting in all of the difficulties, all of the infirmities, all of the problems, all the opposition, all the obstacles that you have to face every single day. And you just, you're just so happy about them because you know that God has them there in your life so that you can grow spiritually, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. That's the principle. So Paul concludes, therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities. No, he's not a masochist. He takes pleasure in infirmities because he understands the purpose. That's the same thing James says in James 1. Count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. You don't get it any other way. So therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches. Most Christians get their feelings hurt once they talk to somebody about Christ and they don't respond and they call them some kind of name. Then they've been reproached, so they feel bad about it and they go try to figure out how to boost their self-image. I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, well, now you're going a little too far, Paul. In persecution, in distresses, for Christ's sake. See, a lot of Christians go through it, but it's really not for Christ's sake. That's not why you have the problems. It's mostly because you made bad decisions. And he concludes, for when I am weak, then I am strong. That is where the exchange takes place. And this is what we're going to see in Gideon, because Gideon is going to learn he doesn't keep the lesson learned, but he he learns it, that it's God's power and not his power. And God's got to demonstrate that to him, but the lesson doesn't really, really sink in. 
And one of the other passages that makes this clear is in Isaiah 40, 30, and 31. I often recite Isaiah 40, 31 as a promise, but it must be understood in the light of the a contrast with verse 30. That's why there's a but at the beginning of 4031. When we claim a promise, then the second part is exposing the doctrinal rationales. And so the, the rationale in the promise is starts with the contrast. In contrast to the weakness, the natural weakness of every human being. It's a, the contrast is with these young men that are at the prime of their youth, the prime of their strength, the prime of their ability to to do great things physically. Isaiah says, even the youths shall faint and be weary. They'll run out of steam. They'll run out of gas. Eventually, uh, they hit, the, hit a wall, and they just can't keep going. Uh, even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fail. You can't trust in human strength, human effort. It will always fail you. Contrast, but those who wait on the Lord. So the difference is, are you putting your trust in human viewpoint gimmicks and human viewpoint solutions and human viewpoint techniques? Or are you going to take the time to find out what the Lord's solution is and trust in him? And the result of that is that you re, they'll renew their strength. Now, these two words, those who wait on the Lord and renew their strength, are these two Hebrew words that are up there, kava for wait and chalef for a change, and it means it has the idea of being renewed. They shall renew their strength or they shall exchange their strength for God's strength. And the result is they're able to, uh, they're able to fly. They're able to run like the wind and they're able to walk and not faint. They don't run out of gas. They don't get a second wind here because a second wind is going to die out. They, they are resupplied with a, with the strength of God. And we see this same use of these two verbs in the, uh, Job 14.14, 14, where Job says, if a man dies, will he live again? The first part of Job 14, he's really depressed. And he just says, "Man," he starts off, man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. Oh, woe is me. And then by the time he gets to verse 14, he's starting to focus on the Lord and divine viewpoint. And But here he's saying, you know, if a man dies, will he live again? All the days of my struggle, I will wait until my change comes. And this is the idea of an exchange of power. And so that's what happens in what we see in 2 Corinthians 12, in Isaiah 40, in Job 14, is we exchange our strength uh, for God's strength. So the emphasis here is, on relying on, waiting upon, having a confident expectation of, of, of God's strength. Now, this episode that we are going to look at in Judges 6, 7, and 8 is important. It's central to the history of Israel. Several times this is referred to in future verses. They refer back to this event. 
we get into passages, uh, passages in uh, uh, the Psalms, passages in Isaiah uh, that look back to this event that took place uh, under Gideon. Now, why is it always looking back? Because there's not going to be a problem with the Midianites after this. Okay? This is the, just like the Bible looks back to the Exodus event as the key event in their deliverance from uh, slavery to Egypt, this is the event that is often plucked out of the book of Judges as a reminder of how God is gracious and faithful uh, to Israel. Now, there's three things we ought to think about with regard to Midian. Unlike other other nations and other peoples, you're just not going to be able to list 10 or 15 different things. So it's a short list, actually four things. First of all, and I didn't get this on a map, uh, it's a region southeast of Israel. It uh, would be in the region if you know where the Dead Sea is and you follow the Jordan down to where it hits the Red Sea. Just to the east of that, is the area of Midian. And this was uh, settled by the the descendants of Midian, who was a son of Abraham uh, by his second wife, Keturah. So uh, they are distant cousins of the Israelites. Second thing is that the inhabitants of Midian at the early stage, at the time of Moses, uh, the Midianites were very friendly to uh, Moses, to the uh, Israelites as they came out of Egypt. Moses was married to the daughter of Jethro, who was a priest uh, of the Midianites. But later on, in the period of the Exodus, so this isn't much later. This is like 40 years later because they're wandering in the uh, Judean desert for those 40 years, trying to go about 10 miles um, then when they're starting to come up the uh, Transjordan area, that is the area west or east of the Jordan, across the Jordan, the king of the Moabites hire this pseudo-prophet by the name of Balaam to curse Israel. And uh, so the Midianites' king is... is uh, is the king of the Moabites there allied with them, and so they're hostile to the Jews, to the Israelites at that point. And then we see them again, and here they're in alliance with the Amalekites and others who come out of the east, and they're not specified. So it's it's a, a some sort of alliance of various uh, clans and tribes, and they're defeated by Gideon, and they're never mentioned again. That's it. So we want to look at a couple of things, and so we'll start with Psalm 83. Psalm 83. Now, this shows us how and why this episode with Gideon that takes up so many chapters is so so important, and in light of how it's referred to later on in the Old Testament. This psalm in Psalm 83 is a a national lament 
when you get into a study of the Psalms, as we have in the past, that there are some Psalms that are individual laments. A lament is basically when you're crying out to God because you're going through uh, some horrible situation and difficulty. And then there's a national lament. Well, this is a national lament. And so the situations that it refers to in Psalm 83 are not unlike those that occur in the time of the judges. And this is a psalm of Asaph. And what's interesting, you can read through the whole psalm. I won't go through it, but he, he, is, he presents a case, an argument, a logical, logically structured rationale for why God should intervene in Israel at this particular time, just as he has in the past. And so the initial uh, petition is a cry to God in verses uh, 1 through 3. He, he, he cries out to God, don't keep silent, O God. The implication there is they've been going to God in prayer. They've been uh, going to the high priest with the Urim and Thummim, and there's nothing. Do not hold your peace, and do not be still, O God. So all three of those stanzas are repeating the same thing, uh, calling out to God, uh, crying out for him to answer them. And then in verse 2, it points out the problem. Now, here you see divine viewpoint. doesn't say the enemies of Israel recognizes that world history must be understood in terms of the angelic revolt, that these human enemies, these nations that have set themselves against Israel are the enemies of God. They are not the enemy. They are not just the enemies of Israel. And that's the same thing today. The so-called Palestinian Arabs are the enemies of God. Those who are anti-Semitic, those who are anti-Zionist, are the enemies of God, and they are standing against the plans and purposes of God. And it, it's funny how even, uh, among even some conservatives, and I've known some some evangelicals that I've had to to uh, talk to, and I just can't understand it, they have taken this position that, well, Israel is disobedient right now, so because they're in carnality, then we're absolved of any kind of blessing for, for Israel. And that's the screwiest kind of thinking, because if you go back and you look at the Old Testament, you just walk your way through the events of the Old Testament, all the way through the Old Testament, you see that quite a good bit of the time, Israel is in apostasy, just like the Jews are today. Does that mean that uh, the Abrahamic covenant was kind of put on hold because they were disobedient to God? Does God say, I will bless those who bless you as long as you are being obedient to me? That's not even in a textual variant. There's no, there's no qualification there. Those who bless you, I will bless. It doesn't matter whether those who bless you are believers or unbelievers. It doesn't say that. It doesn't qualify it. And it doesn't matter whether uh, Israel is walking with the Lord or not. Those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. And it, two outstanding examples of how God used pagan nations to bring judgment on Israel in the Old Testament would be Assyria 
and they conquered the northern kingdom and took it out under the uh, fifth stage of discipline in, in 722 B.C., and then the, the southern kingdom was taken out by uh, Babylon in 586 B.C. And, and then what did God do to the nations that took them out? God judged them because they caved into anti-Semitism in their cultures. And so God punished them for that. Uh, just because God used a bad guy to whip, to be the, his uh, tool to whip the Jews and to punish them doesn't mean that they get off scot-free in their anti-Jewish or anti-Israel uh, activities. So... There's this cry out against the, the enemies, and verse 3 says, uh, you, They have taken crafty counsel against your people and consulted together against your sheltered ones. I think it's really interesting. This issue boils down to your people, Israel, your sheltered ones, and when we get to the end, we're going to see it has to do with the land. So everything structured here is structured on the basis of the, of the Abrahamic covenant. And um, when we look at how he pleads, for, for, pleads with God here, he's going to give a historical argument starting in verse, um, in verse 6. And he's going to walk us through the history of these various nations that have opposed God. And what we have to recognize is this tells us that history is important. History is very important. Again and again and again, God goes back to history in order to establish certain things, and we live in a world that denies the validity or importance of history, but you can't do away with it. Once you attack the historical foundations of the Bible... Now, this was recognized by those who are anti, who are anti-God, anti-Christ, and anti-the Bible, starting in the Enlightenment. And they recognized that if they can just destroy the validity of the history of the Bible, then they can destroy the Bible. So there has been this full court press against the historicity of Jesus, the historicity of Daniel, the historicity of Moses, the historicity of the Exodus, the historicity of the flood, the historicity of Adam and Eve uh, for the last 300 years. If you can do away with history, the accuracy of the history in the Bible, then you can, uh, uh, you can do away with Scripture. And we see the elements of this. Once you start attacking history in one area, you start attacking history in everything else. And since the 60s, there has been a full court press by the progressive left against the history of this nation and the history of, of Christianity. The progressivism of pol politics is the first cousin of the pro progressivism of theology. They go hand in hand when you study the history of ideas. And every now and then I run into people who will say, well, I wish you wouldn't get into politics. Well, politics has to do with how people relate to each other and are governed. And are you saying that the Bible doesn't have anything to say about that? The Bible has a lot to say about that. And we can't just ignore some area because it might disagree with what you think you should do when you're in the voting booth. 
I never tell anybody who they should vote with. I just try to take, take the general principles. And we live in a world that it's so hard to find people who really hold to um, all of the divine principles that it's pretty clear that it's a choice between somebody who rejects them all and somebody who believes in three of them. Well, three is better than nothing, so that's who we go with. That doesn't mean we like a lot of things about them, but we... Um, we dislike him, and his damage will be maybe less than somebody else's somebody else's damage. And so we live in this era since the death of George Floyd two years ago, where we have given credence to the arguments of Antifa, the arguments of Black Lives Matter, and these various organizations that seek to rewrite history. And they're not stupid in the way they go about it. These are these are smart people. Satan is extremely intelligent. He's a lot smarter than any of us ever thought we were. And they're able to twist things and to turn things and to rewrite various narratives uh, so that it seems like, well, maybe they have a point. But once they start attacking the history and rewriting the history of a nation or just saying let's do away with it, and they've attacked it, in a wonderful way in, in public schools is they've made it boring. And they've taken out a lot of good information, and so people don't understand why they have to listen to these boring talks and what's going on. Now they introduce their inflammatory ideas, and so this gets people totally divorced from an understanding of their own history or their own culture. And then they want to remove statues. They attack the flaws of historical heroes who've achieved great things. And I remember as a uh, college student majoring in history back in the early 70s, because this started even before the 60s, and you started having a lot of scholars, and they're publishing. I remember reading um, when I got out of college, I thought I need to bone up on uh, on the leaders of the American War for Independence, And so there was a new biography by Fawn Brody, who's very liberal, I didn't know that at the time, on Thomas Jefferson. And so the emphasis is all about his sins. But that's typical for progressives because the key thing in progressivism is that that human beings don't have sin. Progressivism is grounded upon Darwinian evolution. So if there's there's no God, there's no sin, there's no Garden of Eden, there's, there's no sin. And so uh, <clears throat> we see that out of those movements in the 60s, you had the development, the, the seeds were, were planted for the, this whole cancel culture movement, the whole Black Lives Matter movement, all of which are products of Marxism. And Marxism, unfortunately, for a lot of people, a lot of Christians, is an antithetical to biblical Christianity. And that's what we're going to see in what we've been seeing in Judges is when you buy into human viewpoint, when you buy into the paganism, the zeitgeist of the age, Romans 12.2 says that, that we are to not be conformed to the world, to the thinking of this, of this age, the spirit of the age, but we're to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And so we can't let the culture dictate our our thinking. And that's what happened in the period of the judges. They tried to compromise and they tried to create a merger with the paganism, the fertility religions of the ancient world. Think about what, what happens at the foot of Mount Sinai. 
Moses goes up to get the law. While he's up there, the people get bored, and so they want to have a big orgy, a big party, and they uh, keep keep um, browbeating Aaron until he finally gives in, and they give him all their jewelry they brought out of out of Egypt, and he makes a golden calf. And what did he say? This is the God that brought you out. So it's first it's an idol, and it's a rewriting of history. And this is exactly what is happening um, in Black Lives Matter, and this is what is happening in cancel culture. And you can't blend the two. That's what he's doing. He's trying to blend the truth that it is God who brought us out, but it's this golden calf God. And a golden calf was also representative of Baal. So it's trying to assimilate and this is what's happening with so many Christians today is they are trying to assimilate. They want to be comfortable with the culture. Well, the more pagan and anti-God a culture becomes, the more we're going to be tested. Are we really going to stand uh, stand up and be uh, ridiculed, or are we just going to uh, cave in? So this is very difficult. So I want to I want to stop here, and then we'll come back and pick it up here, talking about the basic nature of flaws in every culture. Every leader is flawed. There's no perfect government. There's no perfect leader. Uh, there's they're all flawed. They're all sinners. Everybody is a sinner. But what happens when you start talking about uh, social justice? And what happens when you start talking about uh, all of these social problems, making, making that the big deal that they do, is that it's built on the false assumption that man is basically good. Progressive theology, progressive politics, progressive philosophy is not new. It has its roots in the Enlightenment. It began to sprout in the early 1800s, early movements like the early feminist movement, the early transcendentalist movement, all of these early movements, the, the, uh, the Pelagianism or semi-Pelagianism of the uh, revivalists in the Second Great Awakening. Uh, that's the sprouting of this um, man-centered view of reality. And it, they they began. What what did they all have in common? From the uh, sort of neo, not, I can't use that term neo Calvinist. It was the New Haven theology, the second or third generations that came from the uh, root of Jonathan Edwards' theology. And Edwards didn't hold to these things, but they twisted it. And so those who were second, third generation of his followers they're ending up saying that man is basically good. I mean, these are supposed to be strict Calvinist, but they're not. And so man is basically good. You get the Pelagianism of uh, Charles Grandison Finney, that everybody is born neutral just like Adam was born neutral. Then everybody's basically good, and that morphs into the idea that America can bring in the kingdom because we're all basically good. And that's the roots of progressivism. So we'll come back next time because we need to understand that in terms of two things. Number one, Romans 12.2 says, don't be conformed to the spirit of the age. If you don't know what the spirit of the age looks like, you're going to be conformed to it. 
So we have to understand that. Second, that's a great application of what's happening in Judges 6, 7, 8, and 9, is you see how Israel uh, trusts God for a moment, and then they're just pressed into the mold of the Canaanites, and they think like the Canaanites, and they get to where they're worse than the Canaanites. Same thing's happening today in our culture. So we'll come back here next time. Father, thank you for this opportunity to look at these things, study these things this evening, and to think about our thinking, to think about where we are in our culture, think about how even we have been influenced by the uh, uh, relativistic ideas of the pagan culture around us and help us to identify this kind of thinking that we may... um, that we may weed it out of our of our souls and of our thinking. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.